intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. In this episode, I want to share my thoughts on the election, on 45's impact on our country the last four years, particularly the evangelical church and their allegiance to 45. I want to share reflections on the significance of Madam Vice President Kamala Harris becoming the first woman, the first woman of color, the first black woman, the first HBCU grad to hold the office of the vice presidency, coming one step closer to the presidency. I think it's safe to say we can breathe. We can all take a deep breath and exhale. I remember listening to President-elect Biden when he shared for the first time after being projected the winner. And it was just a calm. You could, you could feel in your body, at least I could, in my body, I could feel the peace, <laughs> the, the, the difference between him speaking and 45 speaking, radically different. And so I appreciate that and I welcome that. And I think we all need that right now. But I think it's safe to say we can breathe. We can take a deep breath and exhale. Now, I'm not saying that Biden is a savior. But I do believe he has shown the capacity to lead in healing, both relationally and emotionally. When you listen to the senators and the congressmen and women who have interacted with him on both sides of the aisle. That's what he's known for. He's known to build those relationships. And I think that is necessary right now. But I also think because he's been so transparent with what, all that he's been through, the tragedies, losing a wife and a daughter, most recently losing his son, I think he has the capacity much more so and I think most would agree, much more so than 45, to bring healing, emotional healing, coming off of the heels. And, and really, we're still in the midst of COVID-19. But as we enter 2021, to lead us into a space of healing, I think he has that capacity. And I think if, if nothing else, for such a time as this, Biden is what's needed. Regardless of what you may think about policies, sometimes there are people who are, who are made for a moment. They come around for a moment. And when you see him, you see, yes, he's an older white man, but it's like a, a grandfather that's like trying to settle everyone down. Let's just, we'll get through this. And that's what we need right now. And he's, he's even admitted he's a bridge. But I think right now we need to be able to exhale and breathe. But I want to take a moment and just talk about the significance of Madam Vice President Kamala Harris and the history that was made this past week. And what this means to all Americans, we should appreciate this history, but particularly to women and especially women of color. And we narrow it even, even more so black women. I've, I've always said that women have always been the backbone of the family, the church, the community. 
social movements, you name it. They have been the backbone. If you grew up in a black church tradition, you know that if it's not for the women in that church, the mothers of the church, even though more often than not, they don't get, they didn't get the pulpit, the opportunity to lead the same way that men, men did. But you know for sure if those women, if the mothers of the church were not there, we don't have a church, not a high-functioning one. And black women just inherently, innately, when they succeed, everyone succeeds. They take care of everyone. They make sure the community is good. It's just in their DNA. And I think we all need to pause and, and, and really appreciate the history that was made this past week. You think about uh, a century ago when women didn't have the right to vote. You think about the still having to fight for equal pay. The fact that they still have to fight for protections from the norms of sexual violations. Again, this moment should be appreciated by all. Let's not skip over this. A lot of times we like to make things very generic and we skip over the color and we want to make it. It's all about all Americans. Yes, it's about all Americans, but there are times when it's about a particular group and seeing that group thrive. So this moment should be, must be appreciated by all. And I think, I think it's not just because women, she represents women, but she stands at that intersection of race and gender. So there's even more to overcome. And so even within the black community, there's still that, that, that hurdle uh, when you add gender to the mix. Whether we're talking in the church, in the workplace, uh, what, what, ha what have you. So she stands at that intersection. And now black girls, Indian girls, Asian girls can actually see themselves in Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, see themselves in that position, see themselves like we have the potential because this is about potentiality. This is why this is so important. This is about potentiality. Their potential is not limited. Little girls can say it's not just for the boys. And I imagine they felt the same way I felt when Barack won. And I, I imagine that all African-Americans, male or female, felt the same way. But now it's specific to women. Because when Barack Obama won, I, I, I was in tears. I was in tears. I had met Barack Obama, President Obama, in 2004 when he was in Los Angeles working out at my gym. He wasn't very popular or known at the time by a lot of people. And I went over to him and a thought came to my mind, he's going to be the first black president. I'm going to go and meet this guy. He had just spoken at the DNC. And I met him. We talked for a few minutes. Very approachable. Very down to earth. Like, I, like someone you just play ball with. And that's who I saw on the screen, on, on television. That's who I saw for eight years. And still, that, that's who he is. And so when he won, I was in tears because I was able to see myself, even though I don't plan on running for president. But to, see, to know that a ne the next generation of black men, they can... They can see themselves in that office. It's doable now. The glass ceiling has been broken for African-Americans. Now it's women's turn to crush that black, 
that, that glass ceiling. And so I think about the kids who, in this generation, they grew up with a black president for eight years. And four years later now, for, the, for at least four more years, they will have a black vice president. Like, this is their reality. It is radically different than mine when I was at their age. And this is a good thing. I'm glad it's different. The closest thing I remember to this, for me as a kid, when I was about 9 years old, 11 years old, is when Jesse Jackson ran for president. And I remember Jesse Jackson was in Georgetown, South Carolina, and he was coming to speak at my home church, Bethel AME Church. And the, 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 the church was packed, and this energy in the city, everyone was excited. And, and I just, I walked up to the church. I wanted to get in, but I couldn't get inside. It was packed. And I remember they opened the door to let a few people in. And I was this little kid standing outside on his tippy toes trying to see over people. And I got a glimpse of seeing Jesse speaking, almost preaching from the pulpit with this afro and his suit on. And my eyes lit up. I could still see, I could still see and feel that moment to this day, 30 plus years later. And that opened up my eyes of the possibilities. I, I knew I could at least run for president. I didn't know if I could, anyone African-American could win it, but we knew we could at least run. And that was huge for me. And so I imagine these little kids today, these little girls today, seeing the same thing. The vice president looks like me. And that's huge. And I don't want to skip over that. I want us to appreciate that about this election. But what else did this election say about America as we take a deep breath and breathe and exhale and reflect? Okay, what else does it say? Well, one thing is the obvious is that we are not the United States of America like we think we are. That's the ideal. We're united geographically, but we are divided, the divided states of America. We are divided by race. We are divided by political party, which means we're divided by ideology. What we believe, what we think is best for this country. We are divided down the middle. Other than, I think, maybe Barack Obama's elect second term, I think he won by maybe about 60%, if I'm not mistaken. But it wasn't as close as the first time. Other than that election, every election is straight down the middle, 50-50. Half of the country wants to go one direction, half wants to go the other direction. And then the, the vitriol, the rhetoric, the, the not just as Vice President, as President-elect Biden says, we've made enemies out of our opponents now I would argue we've always been like that but we can't disagree on anything and so we take the, 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 the position that the other who's not like us or doesn't think like us is an enemy they're an enemy and a threat maybe even a better word a threat to our well-being but, you know, I've been trying to understand for the last week how so many Americans, especially evangelical, America, evangelical Christians, and I want to focus on them for just a second, could vote for 45 after four years of what we saw. 
I'm I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. I have my my thoughts on that, and I'll share a little bit. But how is that possible? Four years of scandal. Four years of disrespect to just about anybody. Four years of chaos and stress and anxiety every day, not knowing what you're going to hear from this man. Four years of divisive rhetoric. If you agree with him and like him, you're fine. You disagree, then you're an enemy and you're insulted. Four years of racist tendencies, dog whistling. So what, is, what, has, what has the last four years meant for evangelicals? What does the last four years say about evangelicals? Because there seems to be this blind, immovable allegiance to a man who bears no fruit. It's interesting that Senator from Nebraska said recently, that behind closed doors, this man mocks evangelical Christians. And it seems as if just hearing that would get people to start to think twice. Is he, is he authentic when he speaks about God, when he speaks about Christians? He does not really spend much time in church. We, don't, we haven't seen that in four years. Worshiping. This is a man who says, I've, I've had no reason to ask God for forgiveness. What Christian says that? Now, if he's saying he's not a Christian, then that's different. But I'm asking for evangelicals to really think about the, the allegiance to this man. Immoral patterns of behavior followed him to the White House. He's heard on audio recordings, saying some of the most vile things, particularly about women. He mocks disabled people publicly, or a disabled person publicly. That's a whole portion of our country. That's a community in our nation. If he's mocking one, he's mocking all. His, dis his utter disrespect towards Senator McCain, who is respected across the board. You may disagree with him politically, but this man, not, I don't know how many people are POWs, survive and come back and serve this country in public office. And he utterly disrespects this man even after his death and continues to. A Republican, by the way. His disrespect towards women especially women of color. How many times has a woman asked a tough question and he calls her nasty or says her question is nasty? He always uses that word nasty for women in general, but he definitely uses it regularly for women of color. No one says anything. His repeated lying, repeatedly lying. Now, in my Bible, lying is linked to Satan. That is certainly not linked to God, to Jesus. And this man, in an interview, can say one thing, be called on it, and by the end of the interview or the press conference, say that he didn't say it. 
This man can do an interview or have something on video, that he, whether he is talking about an individual that he knows or some position he's had, can be called on it and say that it's on video and he will still say, I don't know the man, I don't know the person, when he just talked about them a few years ago on video. Like there's evidence. But he boldly lies because he knows he can. He knows his base is not going anywhere. I would feel insulted that someone feels like they can say whatever they want to say and I'm not going anywhere. What does that say about my, my bar for decency, for character, for integrity? And I actually feel, no, I don't. I was going to say I feel bad for, for those who have that allegiance, but I don't. I don't really. Um, it's sad that he's playing them. And they believe everything that he says. And I, I would imagine news networks that support him play a role in that as well. But we're talking about we're talking about a church that evangelical pastors or leaders are prophesying that God has ordained this man to be president. And what's interesting, now they're saying God is not pleased with this election. So when he wins, God ordains him. When he loses, God's not pleased. There's almost deification of this man is dangerous. It's dangerous to the church. Because there's so, so many people in the church who, who, who do not critically think about these things. They believe they're leaders. They hang on their words as well. And when you endorse this man, the rest of the church will. I'm trying to understand these evangelicals. I'm trying to understand this blind allegiance to someone who bears no fruit. There's a place for decency. There's a place for character. Whether you're a Christian or not. Barack Obama, he's not half the man that Barack Obama is. And they tried to shred him to pieces for any little thing that he did or said, even his name. And yet this man does whatever he chooses and there's an allegiance to them, to him. Why is that? Why is there a doubling down on this man? Is what I'm, is what I'm trying to figure out. Where almost half the country voted for him. Here's, here's what I think. I think there's a pervasiveness. The pervasiveness of whiteness plays a role. And when I say whiteness, I'm not talking about just white skin, or white ethnic background. I'm talking about whiteness as a way of being, a way of a worldview, a way of seeing the world, a way of um, seeing others. Whiteness as the norm for humanity, the norm for society. And, that, and being comfortable in that and in anything else is an other. It's a deviation of whiteness because that's the norm. That's the standard. I think, I think that plays a big part in this. I think it's subconscious for a lot of people. I think it's blatant for some. I have a difficult time supporting a man that white supremacist groups celebrate. That, if nothing else, that would make me pause before I supported this person. But Donald Trump, because Donald Trump's message isn't what is powerful. 
It's not his message. If you listen to the things that he said over the years, there's no real substance, no real depth to what he's saying. I mean, it's difficult to listen to, actually. But there's no real depth to what he's saying. We're going to win. We're going to be the best ever. No one's ever had this before. No one's ever done this before. He takes the best of the best, and he highlights that, and trusts that his base will not investigate further to interpret what he just said more deeply, more critically. So it's not that his message is powerful, because here's the thing. He is the message. This brings me back to the idea of whiteness. He is the message. He embodies what resonates with white conservative America. He is the incarnation of whiteness. Beyond physical appearance, white skin, blonde hair, um, tall, and, and that, that tough look on his face, which I think is an overcompensation, um, and he's not so tough, but that look. Um, but but, but the, the way he thinks, dominance, conquer, law and order, Othering people, the way he speaks about people of color, from Muslims to Hispanics to African Americans to the way he speaks about them, and then thinks it's okay to say one other thing good about some of them, but the way he consistently speaks about them, the group as a whole, and then when he talks about white people, including white supremacist groups, he softens his stance. He finds something kind or they're good people he is the embodiment of whiteness this again this dominance this taking over um, perpetually denying racism or racialization that we live in a racialized society, downplaying it or denying it altogether. That is a product of whiteness. And typically white people, and, and, and by the way, you don't have to be white to be immersed in whiteness, to be influenced or socialized by whiteness. Actually, all of us are influenced by whiteness. We live in a, a racialized society and white has been the dominant, not just group, but the dominant, um, again, ideology um, in our culture. It has shaped all of our lives, for good or for bad. And I, I, when I say good or for bad, I mean there are some people who would probably see it as a good thing, but it has shaped all of our lives. But whiteness or white folks typically do not see themselves as racialized people. They see others as racialized. They see others as ethnic groups. People of color are ethnic groups. But, well, all of us are ethnic groups, including white people but they don't see themselves in a racialized sense. Whereas as a marginalized group or a group of color, we have to see ourselves that way. We are reminded of it every day in various ways. And so I think who he represents, he is the incarnation, the manifestation, one, one, one uh, scholar says, the manifestation. And oftentimes we don't wanna say of whiteness, but that's what it is. We even talk about, when we talk about racism, I think we're missing the point. Racism is the product of. Racism is what we see, what we experience, what we navigate. But there is something that undergirds that. There is a foundation. There, there are roots to that. And it stems from, everything stems from white supremacy. 
Because even if you took the suprem if you took the supremacy part away from whiteness or white, then you just have a, a, a different issue, a different perspective. You may have an issue with tribalism, but the supremacy part, and from that, that's how the, the, the society, our society has been organized from white supremacy and the inferiority of people of color and women, especially black people, being at the bottom of that, that scale, that hierarchy. But it's the white supremacy part, it's the supremacy part that has structured our society historically. And Donald Trump represents that. He embodies that. As a matter of fact, Anthony Scaramucci, a white guy who was in Trump's administration for a brief period, has been speaking out honestly, um, challenging Trump and calling Trump out um, since he left the administration. And he said this on CNN. He said, trying to, we were thinking about the allegiance of Trump followers, the cult-like allegiance of Trump followers. And he said, it's because Trump is the last white man standing. And they didn't really talk about it after he said, they just kind of brushed over that. Not because he's the last man standing. He's the last white man standing. A white man said this. And he's not a liberal. He's not left-leaning. He's a conservative. He's a Republican, if I'm not mistaken. And he recognizes this. He made sure to, to insert the white part in that statement. And so until we're willing to have these honest conversations about how that has influenced the way white people think, see the world, see each other, see themselves, until we're willing to talk about that, we're going to always have these issues. And it'll just be the next white guy or white woman that says similar things and embodies similar things that makes middle America comfortable. That's where that, that those are my thoughts on the, the, the cult-like allegiance to Donald Trump, what he embodies. Because even our theology that's been passed on is, is influenced, deeply influenced, that we've inherited deeply influenced by, by whiteness. It's colonized theology. And so I've been on this journey in the last five, six years, maybe even a little bit longer um, unconsciously, but certainly intentionally the last five, six years, of decolonizing, deconstructing my theology and reconstructing something that looks more like Jesus. Dr. King said this years ago. He said, men of the white West have grown up in a racist culture and their thinking is colored by that fact. They don't really respect anyone who is not white. MLK, the person who spoke... I have a dream. Everyone likes to quote all the nice things. He said this, and it is still relevant today. And I think it is poetic justice. As I close these final thoughts, I think it's poetic justice that the pandemic effect, the thing that he tried to deny, downplay, ignore, call a hoax, that's taking lives, affecting families, many of whom I know personally, but the pandemic effect is what, what took him out. It caused many, many Democrats at record levels to vote early, vote by mail. And as he thought he had these leads, those votes started coming in, started coming in. And he lost those elections. And sadly, even his chief of staff, 
during this time of we were waiting for the count, even his chief of staff, and I think someone else on his, in his administration has COVID. Now, I don't wish any ill will on them, but they, they subscribe to his rhetoric. It's a hoax. It's not that big of a deal. I hope they, they do well. I hope they're, they're well. I hope they, they don't suffer too much from this. But voters of color in Arizona, it seems like the Latinx vote may have pushed Biden over the hump in that state. But we do know in Georgia, namely in Atlanta and those other cities around Georgia that are highly populated by African-Americans, came out. they came out to vote, flipped Georgia as flipping Arizona, flipped Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Philly, they came out to vote. Who has he been disparaging? Especially lately with Philadelphia, Michigan, Detroit, they came out to vote. So it's voters of color who he has disparaged for four years, who put Biden over the hump. Going back to Arizona, McCain State, the state, the man that he has disrespected so much, very well could be flipped to blue. Women of color, who he calls nasty. Women of color, black women, playing significant roles in turning Georgia blue. Stacey Abrams, people like Mayor Lance Bottoms, and then lastly, coming back to Pennsylvania, Biden's home state is what put him over the, over the hump, gave him the, over, took him over 270. Poetic justice. And it's moments like that, <laughs> while some may not want to say it's prophetic, some may not want to say God is involved. I believe Biden more than I believe Trump, way more than I believe Trump. I believe Biden is a man of God. I believe he takes his faith seriously. I may not agree doctrinally with many things in terms of him being a Catholic, but that's beside the point. He's a man of faith. He's shown it. You can see it. You can see the fruit. And so I want to remind us, we can breathe. We can begin to heal. Now, I'm not as confident that we will all of a sudden be this united country. But I do think that we can, I do know that we can feel the difference in the leadership. I'm still excited hearing the stories of this little dark-skinned girl who can say the vice president looks like me. I get excited every time my niece, I think about my nieces being able to, to say that as well. As a matter of fact, today, at the launching of this episode is my, my niece, Kirsten. She turns 13 today on the heels of being able to say, to see herself in the office of the vice presidency is important. It's important to me. I believe I can trust the rhetoric from the White House that it won't be toxic like the previous four years. I believe I can trust that this administration, even with its flaws, that decency matters. I believe hearing from the words, hearing Biden's words, I believe that, that Micah 6-8 will, will, will play out. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Literally, it, it means to execute justice. To love, love. It, it, uh, literal translation, to love, love. Love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. That he calls us to execute justice, not just in individually in our lives, but to execute justice in our communities. To confront the systems and structures that 
create or perpetuate injustice in our communities. He's called us to execute justice. He says to love love. Have a passion for mercy. To empathize, to sympathize with others. Let that be something that fuels your life. And to walk humbly with your God. Humility has its place. Humility has its place. Not just in the confines of the church. It has its place in our lives. It should permeate our being. And then Jesus paraphrases but says the same thing as he's talking to the religious folk. That's why a lot of this, this episode is to the evangelicals. I hope some would download and listen. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious folk. He said, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He's paraphrasing Micah 6.8. He says, these are the things that matter. If you claim to be holy, if you claim to be in relationship with a holy God, a holy son of God, then this matters. Justice matters. Whether you are directly responsible for it or not, you should be anti-injustice. Mercy is a place for compassion. It's a place for compassion. And how you navigate and execute the law. Don't forget the compassion. Never heard that from the White House in four years. Not a consistent message. And faithfulness. And this is not about faithfulness necessarily to each other. Let's not take it out of context. This is faithfulness to God. Now that, That's the difficult part for me because we claim to be a Christian nation, but we're not. But for Christians, particularly for evangelicals, faithfulness. And if you're not execute, if you're not about the first two, you cannot possibly think that you are being faithful. Then we can breathe. Then we can we can breathe beyond four years. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. I just wanted to share some thoughts about the election. Let me take a moment to remind you, you all about my book, Open Wounds. It's on Amazon right now for pre-order or you can go to fortresspress.com and you can find the book there as well for pre-order. Both the Kindle and the hard copy, the, the paperback is up for pre-order. The book will be released February 9th if you continue to listen to my podcast, you can go to my website, philallenjr.com, for more details. And I will be sharing more and more as we near the date for the release of that book. But please, get your pre-order in. I think the book will be impactful. I think it could be life-changing, perspective-changing for many people. God bless you, and thank you for parking with me at the intersections. <laughs>